Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen P. Wood. I'm an emergency medicine and critical care nurse practitioner, paramedic, and podcast host here at World Extreme Medicine. It's great to have you joining us today. We know there are a lot of podcasts out there and a lot you could be doing with your time. We are thrilled that you're spending your time with us for today's podcast. I am excited today to have a longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Vidar Magnuson. And Dr. Vidar Magnuson is joining us from Reykjavik, Iceland. And he's an anesthesiologist by trade uh, and an intensivist by trade and a pre-hospital medicine provider, I think, for fun. Um, but uh, actually holds a, a very esteemed position. Um, he's uh, both a consultant in anesthesiology and critical care in Reykjavik, Iceland, but also the national medical director for pre-hospital care in, in all of Iceland, which is an all-encompassing position. Um, as he will tell you, it involves everything from directing their, um, what we call our 911, but I believe is your 112 system in Iceland, yeah. um, overview of training of pre-hospital care, uh, as well as boots on the ground, um, clinical care, including uh, helicopter EMS, which is going to be our topic for the day. So welcome, Dr. Magnuson, or if I may, Vidar, uh, to our podcast today. Um, is there anything I missed there, anything you'd like to add? No, I think uh, I think you covered it. Some, right, great. It, it sounds like I'm quite, quite busy. <laughs> it does sound like you're quite busy, and I know that myself from... Uh, you know, having uh, been in communication with you for many years and, and tapping into as a resource, you're a busy guy um, and and uh, an important person there in Iceland uh, who's really been, a, a, you know, an important piece of the success of pre-hospital medicine in Iceland. So we thank you for that. Well, thank you. I, I, think, um, I think important sometimes also just comes from being one of few. And I think, you know, you need people to run systems systems don't run without people and right. and um if there aren't enough of us people uh running the system i think uh, the few that are become critical for the functioning of the system right right i would agree and we actually have a little bit of a cosmic connection um you actually uh spent some time here in massachusetts and in fact in the community where i had spent the last 10 years of my career working doing emergency medicine it's a very small town in massachusetts so it was a that's a little bit of a, a an interesting connection um we uh you were a, a host for us uh, or a, a speaker for us many years ago i think at what was the second um world extreme medicine conference that was held here in boston at uh, the esteemed harvard medical school and i remember you talked about ketamine which now yeah, is one of my favorite drugs, not recreationally, but professionally. Uh, and we both also now come from, from, you know, areas that hold hot dogs in high esteem. You know, here in Boston, for whatever reason, we hold the Fenway Frank, which is a hot dog sold at Fenway Park, uh, the home of our Boston Red Sox. And I think I waited two hours in line one early morning at the bequest of some Icelandic nurses to get a hot dog there in Iceland. Yeah, yeah. Which, we we call them the town's best, or they that, that's yes. the name of the uh, of the of, of the little boutique uh, selling them. Um, and and they, as I say, they they are um, 
they're held in very high regard. This is probably yes. Iceland's most popular restaurant. It's just a small hot dog stand. And, and the way, you know, with, with all of the queues uh, coming into there and with the low overhead for, for that uh, restaurant, they, they, they must be making money. <laughs> I imagine so. And, you know, I, I can confirm that it certainly it was a hot dog. Um, and yeah. I, I, I enjoyed it, but I also found some much. Uh, I love the food in Iceland, especially uh, the seafood there. And it was a, it was a great place to visit when I got that opportunity. Uh, but we're not here to talk about hot dogs today. Um, we're here to talk uh, about um, helicopter EMS, and we we both actually have extensive experience in that. Um, you know, in a in a prior life, I spent ten years um, as a flight paramedic at Boston Med Flight uh, here in, in uh, New England. Um, you've worked in a number of different systems, uh, both yes. in the UK, the London HEMS program. Uh, you've worked in the uh, Norwegian program, and you're now uh, working in Iceland. And, and what we want to talk about today is really kind of, you know, helicopter EMS and some of the differences in those systems, uh, not to, you know, simply compare and contrast, because I think, you know, anyone could sit down and do that, but to really look at, you know, uh, a systems-based approach and kind of lessons learned from the different ways helicopter EMS systems are set up throughout the world. Um, your experience, obviously, you know, uh, quite vast. Uh, so we'll kind of, you know, I'm going to leave it to you to kind of take it from here. And, you know, you'll, I'll chime in when I, when, uh, you know, I have a question for you. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think this is a really interesting topic. And I think one that, you know, is really going to be insightful to our listeners. So Vidar, I'll let you take it from there. And uh, I'll chime in when I, when I have a question. All good. So um, just to give you a little bit of a background, so the, give the listeners a little bit of a background. My, um, my medical training comes from Iceland. I'm, I'm trained, so I'm, my basic medical training comes from Iceland. Um, but Iceland doesn't really have a, really, uh, a good system of uh, advanced level training. So most, uh, most of those who specialize uh, in, in any specialist degrees in medicine will need to go abroad. Now we go, um, a lot of us go to Scandinavia, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, uh, many go to the US, UK, and then other European countries such as Holland and, and even down under. So we have some people in training in Australia and, and New Zealand. Um, uh, as I say, I, I did my, I decided to do my anesthesiology training in, in Norway. And one of the big reasons for going there is that Norway has a, has a very strong pre-hospital system. They have one of the most and best renowned um, helicopter emergency medical systems in the world. And, and um, that was definitely one of the main reasons for choosing uh, to go to Norway. What I didn't know at the time when I chose to go there is that it's to, to, to get into that system on a trainee level is notoriously difficult because they, they don't really take in trainees. They, they, they base their system on um, consultant level uh, anesthesiologists. Um, and, and, but, but, as I say, having I, I, before I went to Norway, I, I had both a certain insight into pre-hospital care and an interest in pre-hospital care. I had been working on a ground-based uh, 
ALS ambulance in uh, Reykjavik, Iceland, for a few years. Uh, and then I had also worked on the Coast Guard's uh, helicopter here for a couple of years uh, before doing my specialist training. And, and um, I really enjoyed that, and, and that sort of was a little bit of, and that was a little bit of the reason for choosing the specialty that I chose. I, I, I was trying to decide between emergency medicine and anesthesiology, and really couldn't uh, decide between the two. So I, my decision was really to do both. Started off doing anesthesiology in Norway, and then never ended up finishing my emergency medicine. <laughs> but that, that's sort of besides the point. Um, I, I always had a focus on, I mean, when I was doing my uh, training, I, I, I heard about uh, this position, I read about uh, this position in, in London, uh, the London Helicopter Emergency Medical Service, London HEMS. And, and it was a really, um, it was an article that came out um, around 2002 or three in, in BMJ, British Medical Journal Career section. And, and it was an article that just sort of sparked an interest with me because when I read through it, it, it you know, the, the article was interesting. It said sort of what the job was like and, and it, it said something about the day starts by, you know, you go through your equipment and, and you draw up two sets of anesthetic drugs. And, and I just sort of stopped there. You draw two sets of anesthetic drugs. So I, I knew how my days had started in, in Reykjavik. We went through our medical, um, you know, drugs bag, and we made sure that we had our anesthetic drugs. We never drew them up. Right. And if you draw one set of anesthetic drugs, you're sort of hoping that something's going to happen. If you draw two sets, you know something's going to happen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. and, and that was sort of my reason. I thought, well, wow, they're, they're really doing something. And, and they are. I mean, they, they, they definitely have, they, this, is, this is one helicopter emergency medical system um, that provides uh, trauma uh, competence for one of the largest cities in the world. I mean, London has a population which is somewhere between 7 and 10 million mm. uh, during the daytime. Uh, with all of the migrant workers coming in from the counties around London, it prob it's probably closer to 14 or 15 million, you know, with, mm. with everyone, tourists and everything over the day. And, and you've got one sort of trauma team, team with a doctor and, and uh, flight medic that are uh, ready to service um, the population in case of uh, major trauma. And, and um, on top of that, they have a, a, a paramedic uh, one of their HEMS paramedics based on the, uh, in, in the 999 central, the, the uh, emergency medical dispatch, basically looking for and picking up jobs that are worthwhile for the service where their special skills are going to be um, needed. And that's more than just sort of your normal priority one calls. I mean, the, they're, they're specifically looking for jobs with major um, yeah, with, with high likelihood of major trauma. So, yeah. I mean, they're not trying to pick up calls such as just hit by car or something like that. I mean, it's much more specifically something like trapped under a car mm. or, or, or trapped under a train or, you know, and they're, they're looking for the ones with major uh, impact and, and difficulty in breathing or, or, um, or unconsciousness on top of sort of these serious... Um, uh, these serious mechanisms 
And, and if you look at that, I mean, they, they are doing both procedures and delivering care that are, are you know, state-of-the-art state in the street. I mean, they, they have been, their, um, their approach to the rapid sequence induction in pre-hospital, in a pre-hospital setting uh, has sort of, yeah, well, it's, it's been defining in a way. I mean, it's, it's something that, that um, other systems tend to compare themselves to. I mean, not to say that their approach is the best, it's just one of the most publicized and one of the ones that are, is, is you know, people will compare themselves to, both with respect to their um, rate of RSIs, with respect to their, their um, rate of successful intubations, uh, what, le what drugs they're using, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and so I have uh, kind of two thoughts, and uh, my hope is you can address this. Uh, for, well, one is uh, I was very impressed. We were lucky enough to have some London Hems uh, faculty join us at that World Extreme Medicine Conference back in Boston, and I believe it was 2013, and I remember that for many reasons, but also uh, our Red Sox won the World Series at that time, so that was memorable. <laughs> but uh, but um, uh, they kept referring to their kit, and I had – no idea what they were talking about. I now know what that refers to, but uh, it was very, their gear. Yeah. It was very impressive. Uh, you know, just their approach, their protocol, their protocolized, um, you know, kind of model uh, and their professionalism. So in the Hem, London HEMS program, uh, they are they staffing primarily emergency medicine physicians? Are they anesthesiologists? What's the makeup of a crew on the London Hems helicopter? So, so um, when I was there, um, looking retrospectively, you had about yes. six, 60 percent uh, emergency medicine, okay, thirty percent anesthesia, and 10 percent something else. Most of those something else were surgeons, hmm. uh, but people were coming in with various skill sets, and they they're actually very smart in the way they recruit and, and have done through the years because what they've done is they've both taken people from different specialties to um, to try to bring into their system uh, new knowledge and, and new ideas that they can in, then incorporate into the system through what you were talking about, their SOPs and so forth. So if, if uh, they bring in, for example, a neurosurgeon um, who, who can show that, that you know, pre-hospital uh, craniotomies are a good thing, then, then that's something that, then, that, 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 that they can develop. But you know, yeah, sure. it, we're not there yet. But <laughs> Right, yeah. Hope, yeah. Hopefully not, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, in con so that's in contrast. So in the United States, um, and I'm, I suspect we'll talk, you know, we're going to talk about some of your other systems. In the United States, you know, it's pretty uncommon for physicians uh, to be operating in helicopter EMS. Yes. Our, our system is mostly... Um, paramedics and nurses. There are some systems that use respiratory therapists, uh, but you know it's it's not so common in EMS in general uh, to have physicians, uh, you know, on ambulances, which I know in Europe and other countries is fairly common. Um, or especially in the helicopter EMS system, you know, most of the time these are very experienced paramedics, very experienced nurses who then undergo a lot of additional training. Um, but, you know, it's pretty uncommon for it to be staffed by physicians. And then, you know, and the system works well, but I think, you know, it's good to hear about these other systems because I think, you know, whether or not the United States chooses to integrate, you know, physicians 
into helicopter EMS or not, um, I think there's a lot, a lot of lessons to be learned about the the approach, and that you know you're using not just emergency medicine specialties, but you know the anesthesiologists, surgeons, neurosurgeons, maybe even OBGYN. You know, if there's if there seems to be a role, I think we have a lot of you know a lot to be learned there. The other thing you mentioned that was of interest is you know that they have someone sitting in the dispatch center, um, kind of calling out those calls. Um, you know, here in the U.S., uh, usually it's the decision of the ground units to decide whether or not they require transfer to a tertiary care center. And it's less likely that transfers are happening within large cities. So, for instance, even in our largest city, New York City, it, I don't even think they have helicopter EMS programs that operate within the city. We certainly don't, you know, generally respond to Boston proper. We're mostly doing, you know, and I think this is true of a lot of helicopter EMS systems in the U.S., very rural response. How does that differ from the London HEMS program? It sounds like they do respond within London proper and they do, um, you know, kind of make some decisions about the calls they're going to attend on their own. Yeah. So um, uh, what we're talking about, I mean, um, we actually... Uh, in the London Ham system do respond to crew requests as well. I mean, that's a large part of the calls that they go to is when an ambulance crew has arrived on scene, sees that the, the, the patient has a need for um, a Ham's level intervention or support and, and calls for uh, that team. But, but as I say, on top of that, we have this both an automatic dispatch built into the dispatch system. So there are a few... Uh, types of calls that will immediately call for a HEMS system, and then then we have the the HEMS paramedic on the the desk looking for the specific jobs where where the the HEMS service might be of, of value. Um, back to your question, though. <laughs> Sorry, what was the question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that happens from time to time in these podcasts, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think you know the I I suppose the question was. You know, we we're just kind of comparing and contrasting these programs. Um, but so they, the question really you just answered, which was, you know, do ground services have that um, decision-making capability or is it? No, oh, yeah, yeah. You were talking about the city yeah. proper. I'll go, yeah. go back to yeah. that. So, so, so that being said, um, London has both, um, there, there are rural areas or, or sort of suburban areas around London that the helicopter service as well. So we're not mm. just going to the inner city as such. Um, and, and least of all, because the helicopter doesn't really function as well in that setting as it does in, in, this, in, in the more rural areas that you're talking about. That being said, though, the traffic in London can be, you know, absolutely terrible. And, and um, because of that, um, getting an advanced team out to the patient is often more of an issue than getting a patient into hospital. Mm. There are several trauma centers in and around London, but, but to get that specialized service onto scene and be able to treat a patient, a critical patient on scene before transport to hospital, that's sort of what the helicopter is for. So sometimes, and very often actually, um, the, the crew will just get dropped, dropped off by helicopter, but will travel into the trauma center by ambulance. Mm. Um, so, and but this is London Hams. Then I've also worked with the Cancer Sussex Hams, which is you know in the south of England. They they cover a fairly vast region there, and that's much more 
closer to the rural areas that you're talking about where you have larger distances and, and the distance to the trauma center is such an issue that you will, you know, actually need the helicopter for, you know, lower acuity calls, although they're not actually that much lower because I, I did a bit of sort of comparing when I was working for those two services and the, the percentage of pre-hospital anesthetics is about the same. You know, maybe slightly lower in the rural area, but, but it isn't hugely different. What is different is, however, the number of stabbings, which are astounding in London, but quite a bit less in the outside. Real, well, that's an interesting topic we could maybe cover in and of itself one day. That, I did not, re, did not know that. Um, London yeah, is London's... probably the knife crime capital of the world. Really? And, Interesting. Yeah, so they get a lot they don't of advertise. They don't advertise that very frequently. I mean, no, you would think they don't. Yeah. And, and the thing is, and that's one of the reasons why um, one of the signature procedures that, that you know, the London Hams had developed was the pre-hospital thoracotomy. Mm. Uh, because they, they do a lot of um, um, stabbing-related trauma arrests. And, and um, they actually have a fairly good um, survival rate after, after pre-hospital stabbings, you know, when they go into cardiac arrest, they do thoracotomies and, and the, the survival rate, when it was published last, was around 17%, which is pretty, yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's a good, I mean, I think, you know, the, the United States focuses less on bringing that expert to that scene and it's more kind of, you know, trauma referral to our tertiary care centers. So that's an interesting um, contrast. Um, how So, you know, London, I think, you know, aside just from their sexy orange suits, I mean, they're, they're the mm -hmm. cool, right? They always have the coolest photos of all the HEMS people as well. But as, yeah. aside from just, you know, they're, they're kind of that penultimate program, I think, that many HEMS programs look up to and, and kind of, uh, you know, think of as, as that, um, you know, exemplar of, of how to do HEMS. Uh, let's kind of, you know, you also have done some time in the, in the Norwegian system. Mm. Well, how would you compare and comp contrast those programs? What were the, the kind of differences that you saw between the London program and, and maybe what you did uh, there in Norway? So I think what's really good is that you're using the word program because I think that's what we can say about um, the UK HEMS. There, there's a program, there's a system. They, um, they, they have a very strong culture for uh, training. They have a strong culture for audit and, and, and clinical governance, for, for quality control. And I think all of these things are very rigidly um, controlled and, and their, their medical directors and, and, and clinical leads are very... Um, active in in sort of um, in, in just making sure that their protocols are in place that they have yeah so I, I like the word that uh, I like the fact that you use the word program for uh, the London HEM system because they have more than a system they do have a program um, it, there is a training program in that they take in uh, staff that are at a more junior level than for example the Norwegian system and, and uh, they train them up. Um, that being said, the, they have such, um, so there are so many people applying for positions in the London Hepsis and that, that they are taking 
um, ever more experienced people and there are, there are very few people I think that are getting into that system now without having actually finished their, their specialist training. So they're, they're usually taking in junior specialists now where they used to take in, in residents and registrars. Um, uh, but the, the difference there, we can contrast to the Norwegian system where, where they have um, specialists. I mean, you, you come in as a specialist, you have your training, and they don't, um, they, they don't hold your hand as much through the, the first weeks and, and months of your uh, pre-hospital career. So um, in the UK, there's a, there's a huge... Um, there's a huge emphasis on on training, on clinical governance, on on quality and and uh, audit within the system, and and that's I think partially because if you have lower level um, and less experienced people coming through, uh, you're going to need a system to make sure that they are up to scratch before you you send them out uh, on their own. Versus in in the Norwegian system, they tend to take in people into the system only once they have not only completed their specialist training, but actually, um, you know, usually have shown a critical scare, care uh, skill set that, that is, that, you know, that, that um, lends itself to the pre-hospital environment. People that are able to work independently and, and, um, and, and sort of work without necessarily requiring the SOPs and, and the system that someone less experienced would need. Um, say, having said that, uh, and having worked in both worlds, I actually am very thankful for having had that sort of training, for having learned uh, pre-hospital care with a systems-based approach um, before coming into uh, the less rigid, but but definitely no less demanding system in Norway. Oh, sure, sure. And, you know, it, it seems to make sense. The more, you know, you have more experienced providers, um, they're less likely to want to actually probably engage in maybe the kind of training that uh, a less experienced person might, you know, want to engage in. Um, aside from the medical piece, uh, this is an important part, or this was a very important part of the program I worked in in Boston, um, and it really stemmed from just the uh, the number of programs that um, sprouted uh, here in the 1990s. Um, HEMS, you know, went from just a small number of programs to just uh, you know hundreds of programs uh, as. You know, tertiary care centers realize that these are really referral programs, right? For one, that you know br they're bringing patients in, and that those patients are usually critically ill, um, critical traumas, and that you know there's there's a revenue stream to some degree. Uh, and you know, in the '90s, that led to also you know competition among programs, and so we ended up having a, a fair number of helicopter EMS crashes. Um, in the 1990s, yeah. and it was fairly well publicized, and that you know really changed uh, how many programs operated. Um, so there's, I guess, maybe two parts to this question. I'm sure we'll forget one of them, uh, but the first one would be, uh, you know, how much how much focus is there on aviation safety in in both of these programs, and can you compare and contrast maybe all three, um, given your experience in Iceland, and then we can maybe get to part two. 
um, which I think I've, I've actually already forgotten. But no, part two would be, um, you know, uh, with regard to, to that training and to that QA, um, you know, in the Norwegian uh, system, or, or actually, you know, the part two of the question is, is there that competition amongst helicopter EMS programs, or are these mostly state-based, you know, uh, and, and run out of hospitals, or are they run by the government? I'm just curious, you know, what the kind of makeup of, of the origin of these programs is as well. So I guess one would be the kind of aviation piece, and two would be what's the origin of these programs, and you know, are there private helicopter EMS or is it all kind of state run, hospital run? So I'm going to answer this in the other uh, order because I think um, one, one will answer the other. Uh, the, yeah. the, the systems in um, all of these places, uh, not, none of them are privately operated on a competitive basis. Um, in both Iceland and, and, and in Norway, these are state run systems. Uh, in the UK, it's a um, it is a it, it's funded by charity, and and a lot of a lot of um, a lot of things are funded by charity in the UK. UK, and I say I haven't really found out why they go that way. I think part of it is because that will afford them some flexibility uh, from the rigid uh, requirements of the state operated. Uh, things so so some of these things you know for example they're just a requirement to be able to show um, certain data with respect to outcome um, would have made it very difficult to get a hem service launched in the UK if it wasn't for the assistance uh, assistance of charities so the charities were you know they they saw um, a certain benefit in that this before. Uh, people were able to produce the data to show that they actually made a difference with respect to quality life years, um, and and I think that that's that's how that came about. Um, they managed in Norway to get these helicopters off the ground. I think probably just because they have a very different landscape. I mean, it's very rural, it's very mountainous, and and just getting from point A to point B can either entail a long, windy road or just a fairly short hop in a helicopter. And and so I think that sort of made helicopter emergency medical services in Norway. It it, it gave it a fairly easy way in. Uh, in Iceland. We do not have a helicopter emergency medical service. Um, that is something I'm still waiting on. I'm, I'm really hoping that, and, and I've, I, it has received very positive uh, discussion, and, and uh, you know, both outside and within the government here in Iceland. But, um, but it's still something that we haven't, uh, yeah, we haven't reached that point yet. But we do have a Coast Guard search and rescue helicopter, which does. Uh, provide some emergency medical services function, um, as well as retrieval, as well as coast guard functions, as well as pol policing duties, etc. So this that is a state-run helicopter um, with, as I say, multi purposes. It has various duties, which which does definitely um, complicate the both training and and um, and and various uh, sort of. Um, yeah, and, and, and the way we run the system, let's put it that way. Uh, with respect to the second question, or the first question then, uh, which is, is uh, in regards to aviation safety, I think all three 
systems, whether it be in the UK, in Norway or in Iceland, have a huge focus on safety. Um, and they're, they're very aware of um, the dangers of, of sort of racing to scene. Um, but but um, so, so I say there, there's, there's extreme focus on the level of training, on the crew composition, on, on the um, types of, of aircraft being used, etc. Um, that so I, I've actually been quite impressed and I, I have seldom if ever felt unsafe uh, in, in uh, you know, flying with any of the three or four different services that I have uh, flown with. And in any of those systems, do any of the medical staff train in the aviation piece? Uh, it, that's not very common here either. Uh, you know, I think many people develop a real interest in aviation as, as I did. I really enjoyed, you know, learning about VFR and IFR for all of us aviation nerds and and some of the other things, you know, that these uh, pilots, you know, do on a daily basis. Um, is there any of that? Do any of those systems integrate the medical staff into the aviation piece or is it, you know, very much separate? No, so th there, there is some integration. Um, so the most the, the, the biggest integrated part is is in Norway, where they have a three, crew, you know, three person crew composition, um, where the um, where the paramedic slash hems crew member is actually um, trained uh, both as a pilot. They're not they they're not trained as helicopter pilots, but they they do get trained within the system to be able to fly the helicopter to be able to land it in an emergency situation. So um, they, they have a certain amount of avi aviation tra training, they do navigation, and they actually get trained, not just in emergency procedures. I mean, they, they do, um, they go to simulators just like the, the pilots do as well. So they, they have a fairly advanced level of training within aviation as well. But they have, I mean, they, they have probably one of the coolest jobs in the world because, I mean, these guys are, are usually other paramedics or, or nurse anesthetists with, with vast pre-hospital experience and, and, you know, really well-trained medically. Uh, on top of that, they get to fly helicopters and they learn to do that. And they, they you know, they don't have a pilot's license as such, but they, they can actually, you know, do quite a bit uh, flying-wise and, and get a lot of aviation training and, and aviation theory. And then on top of that, they do all sorts of rescue training, you know, from, you know, uh, tightrope sling from, from a helicopter and, and uh, you know, rescue from, from various types of situations. So looking at their training, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So there they definitely do have that crossover. Um, in the UK, I think they've mostly transitioned over to... Um, yeah, most places are running a, a system where. Um, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll start that again. Um, so in the UK, I think there's there's quite a mix. I mean, some of the places are running with two pilots. Uh, London does just because they are a very busy airspace, and Cancer Sussex does because they're flying at night. But but some places where they're they're still running with uh, three people, the paramedic also gets trained as uh, a hands crew member with much more limited. Um, aviation training than, than in, in Norway, but they do 
do some um, some aviation procedures. And and when I was starting my training in the UK, the doctors actually got that training as well. So we used to switch. Sometimes the paramedic would sit up front, but sometimes the doctor would sit up front. So I got a certain um, insight into that. I did get a bit of aviation training, especially with respect to navigation, weather, and and such aspects. So we we would actually take on that role as well, which was, you know, quite fun and interesting for somebody who you know who who uh, wasn't really ever going to go down that route though. And so so I'm I'm very happy that other people take that over on a more professional level. But but it was definitely fun to have tried that. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, we, we weren't specifically um, training in aviation, but, you know, just after, you know, in over time, you learn to fly, you learned a lot of, you know, uh, you know, of the aviation components, and it, it became one of the most uh, enjoyable parts of the job, for sure. I really enjoyed that piece. And we, we also uh, later on developed a uh, fixed wing program, which uh, became quite fun to to learn to fly that aircraft as well. Um, my, the next piece is actually more of a comment, and you can tell me what your thoughts are on this. Um, but I want to then get into the Icelandic uh, system. You know, one of the things I think that aviation really brought, uh, you know, to to me, or really, uh, you know, I, I kind of focused on, and in fact, you know, one of my other guests was Dr. Sush Prusty. Uh, here in Boston, who does a lot of work on on this? Um, he's a pilot and a, and an EM doc. Uh, was on the use of checklists and the importance mm-hmm. of checklists, um, you know, in aviation. And I remember, you know, we'd go through this checklist and you would practice these things, and really has a lot of application. I know the OR is really good at using checklists. I think emergency medicine is just just starting to integrate. I'd say EMS really doesn't use them at all unless you know you're very um, your program you know engages in that. But you know we have uh, an airway checklist. We have you know especially with COVID, COVID airway checklists, and I think a lot of that kind of stemmed from aviation um, in the importance of these checklists, especially you know three in the morning. Um, you need to go do an intubation on a COVID patient, having that checklist in front of you, just regardless of how many years you've been doing this is helpful. And, and I think that crew resource management and that checklist system really kind of, you know, came from aviation and, and then infiltrated into medicine. Um, did you find that kind of similar experience? So um, w- when Working in the UK, we definitely did use checklists, and and they still do um, before critical procedures, for example, uh, emergency anesthetics. I th- and I think um, I think checklists definitely have a certain merit in that uh, system. However, there there has been some work done to show that if you have a very experienced provider, um, so this this has been done within the Scandinavian hands system within uh, within Sweden. They they have been able to show that with uh, a very experienced provider level, the benefit of the checklist becomes uh, less, and and uh, it does take a certain amount of time. So in 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 a system where you you know have set the system very well up and and you have a very experienced provider, uh, you may actually just be you know wasting away a minute, minute and a half by going through your checklist. I, however, like them. I mean, I, I almost swear by them. And, and one of the things that I liked when, when you know, in, in that system, 
uh, was when when I went through the checklist. You know, you, you get down on your knees. You're 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 by the uh, by the trolley, by uh, by the uh, the gurney, and and by the head of the patient. And you're basically ready to put the patient to sleep, but you're, you're in a less than controlled setting, right? I mean, you're you're outside, maybe raining and maybe windy. Um, you have a lot of people standing around, and and you know things seem like they're not as controlled as you would ideally like to have them. When you then go through that checklist, it feels almost like like a mantra. It feels a little bit like meditation. You know, you you go through the checklist, you hear. Um, your, your paramedic uh, say check to each of those points and as soon as you reach the final point you realize that you've got all your bases covered you're not gonna you know you're very unlikely to run into any problems that you don't foresee and just that puts you at ease and, and your mental state definitely does impact on how you perform in situations like this. So I think just to have that system in place to sort of calm you down and prepare, prepare you for, you know, a critical procedure, I think it definitely does have merits. Have you copyrighted that? Because I think I'm going to borrow that checklist meditation <laughs> development. Absolutely do. Please do. Yes. <laughs> it, 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 I, it, I, it, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. agree. I, I think it really does. It's that, yeah, it allows you that kind of focus that no matter how many intubations you've done, and I think you and many of us who've done a lot of airways, you know, can do them in our sleep. Um, but, you know, it's that one time where you encounter difficulty or you're missing a critical piece of equipment where you realize how important, you know, having those systems in place is. Uh, you, I, so, I, I think you got this the wrong way around, though. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's the patients that's supposed to be asleep, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, I guess I have been doing it wrong. That, yeah, <laughs> I always wondered why my partners were looking at me so oddly when I'd wake up after the call. <laughs> wake up after your yeah. your yeah. side. <laughs> yes. So I, I think you know a lot of people probably have an interest in hearing about what you do in Iceland. I mean, Iceland. I, I've only been once, uh, but it was a wonderful experience. It's such a unique place. I mean, everything from volcanoes to, you know, amazing waterfalls to geysers that you could just walk up to. Uh, uh, and, and then, of course, the Blue Lagoon and, and the many wonderful hot springs, probably my, my favorite thing there. I guess the occasional polar bear I've even heard. Um, and then, of course, the hot dogs who could resist. But, I, you know, I, I think our listeners would, are interested in hearing We've heard about some of these, you know, other well-established programs. What are you doing in Iceland and where do you hope to take the Icelandic program? So, um, first of all, let me ask you, how much is the Icelandic tourist board paying you for this? <laughs> yeah, you, you know, to get me into a hot, hot bath does not take much. So, yeah, they're not paying me anything, I promise. <laughs> but if they're, if they're listening and interested, I could go on and on. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I, I think... Iceland is a cool place in many many ways. I mean, we have um, a country that's quite different, quite different from many other places in that we have limited vegetation. If you look at the country as a whole, and and uh, Iceland is actually central Iceland is one of the biggest deserts in Europe. It's the second big, biggest desert in Europe, which is something that you wouldn't think about when you think about Iceland. But deserts don't necessarily have to be hot. Uh, they just need to be in, un, uninhabitable, and most of Iceland is uninhabitable. Right. Um, so, 
the, the system in Iceland, if we look at the current system um, for, for advanced pre-hospital care, um, we have a fixed wing air ambulance up north in Iceland. And that is, that is a system that, that takes care of sort of most of our rurally based uh, critically ill patients. They, they go and retrieve them and, and uh, they do about 900 transfers a year, um, which comes down to about three a day. Uh, on average, not all of them are critical transfers. I mean, they're, they're doing anything from just uh, repatriations, uh, then up to sort of very, very critical uh, patients that they transfer. Uh, they have, they don't always take their doctor along, but they have the possibility of doing that. <clears throat> so they, they take the doctor along on, on sort of somewhere between one third and, and one half of their calls. And, and those are the more critical uh, retrievals that they do. Then we have the rotor wing in, in uh, Reykjavik, so down south. And, and um, as I say, it's a Coast Guard run unit. We're flying in um, fairly large helicopters, the H-225 uh, from, from uh, Airbus, which is, um, for those who know the Super Puma, this is, this is one of those uh, type, type uh, helicopters. And, and that's fairly big. So we do winching down from uh, the helicopter, both, both the, um, the rescue men who are also EMTs, uh, and Coast Guard navigators, they are sort of the, the primary operator and then they have uh, us with, uh, for medical support. Um, so we do winch down, we do winch down into various di different sort of types of um, situations and terrain. Um, but we're doing all types of jobs. Sometimes the doctor is on board and um, both on board and board, let's just put it that way, because sometimes there's nothing to do medically and you're just flying. You can be bored if there's little to see, but sometimes the nature can be absolutely spectacular. So, I mean, for those who want to uh, sort of get a very good view from their office, well, this is definitely a job to recommend. Um, as I say, we, we have a very varied type case mix. We do some hands type work. We're, we're, we're doing retrievals of both uh, ill people from, from the sort of area in and around 50 to 150 kilometers distance from Reykjavik. Um, but then, then we're uh, also doing some retrieval work, um, for example, to the Westman Islands, that's just south of, south of Iceland, because otherwise they, they have great difficulty getting their patients to, uh, over to the mainland and, and the hospital there is quite limited. But most of what we are sort of tasked to do and, and trained to do is um, rescue. And rescue can involve obviously just somebody who's uninjured and, and just needs to get winched onto a helicopter to get them to a situation of safety. Uh, but, but quite often rescue can entail uh, either an ill or more often a quite injured patient that you need to both be able to treat and stabilize uh, at scene and then rescue them and bring them to hospital. And I think that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about as well, Steve, is, is just contrasting the difference between jobs in the, you know, in the HEMS type system, a blended HEMS rescue system or a primarily search and rescue type system, you know, how we approach jobs, what 
what our training allows us to do and also what limitations those situations can uh, impose. No, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's really much, it sounds, there's much less of a, uh, a focus on strictly the medical piece and it's more of a um, kind of catch-all that you're doing some rescue, you're doing some medicine. It sounds like you even do some, some enforcement, um, maybe even some nature photography, it sounds possibly as well. Uh, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, we have a Coast Guard system here in the U.S. that is really part of the mili- our, our military, and they do a lot of search and rescue. They do a lot of um, uh, law enforcement, but they're not involved at all in the medical piece. Uh, and they do some medical transport, but when they do that, there's no medical personnel on board. Um, it sounds like there's uh, some, some similarities there, but with the addition of the medical piece. Um and so, you know, we're, we're coming up on our time. So I think, you know, what I think would be interesting to hear is then, you know, knowing that and, and hearing about that system and you've brought, you, you've been in so many other systems, you're bringing so much experience, you know, to this Icelandic um, system. What's your, if you can uh, speak on this, what's your goal for the future for further developing that? Is it, is the system that you have currently where you'd like it to be, or do you feel that there's, you know, room for progress and room for for some change uh, to further develop the program? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to steal a couple of minutes just to talk about one thing before yeah. that, and then then we'll go into of course. that. Yeah. Okay, so um, one of the things that I've I've sort of run into in in um, trying to transfer my experience from these more rigid and and well. Uh, well-operated, well, well-trained hem services, and into um, into my job in Iceland is that because of the the hugely varied role that we're we're doing, we're we're sometimes just retrieving people from you know not just a mountain top, but the side of a mountain. And and you know last last winter, for example, we had two patients who had fallen down uh, a mountainside um, in in the middle of winter. They had just slid down an icy bank, and and accessing uh, those two patients for the fir- you know for one thing was quite difficult so we we had on crampons and 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 axes with us when we had gotten down onto the mountain i realized that they were sort of in a valley that we wouldn't be able to access you know without risking losing our footing and sliding down ourselves so we ended up having to you know despite having been being winched into a place where they you know, they, they didn't think they would be able to winch us directly into the valley, but we weren't able to get to the patients without that. So they had to sort of, uh, the pilots had to um, breach their protocols a little bit and and, um, and and deliver us to a position of safety to be able to take care of these patients and, and had to stretch their sort of piloting skills a bit just to be able to get us there. Once we were in this valley, um, all I could do really was uh, hold on for dear life and and hold on to my patient. Now, m- my patient, the one that I took care of, was lying face down on uh, on the uh, hill of the mountain. I could I could speak to her, uh, which meant that I knew that she was conscious and she was able to breathe. But that's what that was pretty much all I had because 
I, if, if I had risked turning her over, she would probably have continued sliding down the mountain. So I really couldn't provide any sort of medical treatment. I was, I was, um, I didn't think it was appropriate to provide any sort of analgesia in that type of setting where, where I really couldn't control anything. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to assist her if I had done anything more to her. So bringing in a skill set where you can perform roadside anesthetics and, and uh, pre-hospital thoracotomies to a slanting mountainside where you, you know, really just have to hold on to make sure that you don't fall down. It can be quite frustrating because the, the only thing I could do there was just hold on until we had a situation where we could take her over into the gurney that, that we were going to um, winch her up in. And, and then just get her into the helicopter. And from there, it was about a three minute flight into the hospital. So when I got there, it was actually quite sort of professionally dis un unsatisfying because I didn't get in an IV. My hands were too cold and she was too cold. I didn't know her name because <laughs> the helicopter was too noisy and I, and I wasn't able to write anything down. I, I, I knew nothing about her except that she had fallen down a hill and I had picked her up in a helicopter. <laughs> and so, you know, being, being a doctor in that situation and trying to give a medical handover, I just said, had to say, well, sorry, I just don't have anything on this patient, but she's alive. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it, it, I'm sure they were impressed that you didn't have a, didn't even know her name, but yeah, no, all kidding aside, yeah, that, yeah, uh, that, that's incredibly frustrating. And, and having seen the landscape in Iceland, I know, you know, that's just, that's probably one of the biggest challenges to, to helicopter EMS is just the different landscapes. And even though, you know, you had a three minute ride, it was, you know, probably, you know, the scene time and the, the struggles that you probably dealt with and the internal kind of thinking about, wow, this is what I could be doing in another situation must've been a frustrating piece. Uh, those are always the memorable cases, right? That we carry with us for. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, and I'm sure what the nurses remember though is like he didn't even ask her her name. He didn't put a name. <laughs> like, Who is this? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But the on, on on the question of sort of systems going forward, I mean, one of the things is, I mean, we we have this um, blended system, and I think um, th there are several things that I want to change in our system. Number one, we're we're doing. Our, our search and rescue helicopter is uh, responding with teams um, that are responding from home. Uh, we don't, we're, not, we're not based on site, which means that for every job that we go to, we tack on an extra half hour, 35 minutes to, to drive in to the base and, and get ourselves ready and get ourselves into the air. And, you know, for anybody who's worked in HEMS, where we realize that you know taking off within the next, you know, within the within five minutes of getting the alarm is is usually our goal. Um, Thirty-five minutes really isn't an option. So that's that's one thing. I think we really just need to move to a place where where we're spending at least part of the the twenty-four hours, uh, ideally the whole twenty-four hours on base, able to respond with a much shorter lead time. So that's one thing. Uh, I think. Something that will come automatically after that will also be a certain uh, increased level of co-training. So today we do a lot of search and rescue training, but, but I don't feel that we're doing enough medical training. And I think um, we, we take in doctors with a certain level, you know, expecting them to be able to perform in the pre-hospital setting because they have the training from in-hospital. But we know that the situation pre-hospitally is quite different. 
and and um, it, it is a big ask to take to, to tell them and ask them to to take their in-hospital skills and just transfer them to pre-hospital setting but we just don't have the the time and people to uh, to do the the training and especially as I say the co-training that needs to happen between our EMTs and our doctors uh, we should ideally be spending more time and we would be doing that if we were spending more time together um, the third thing that I think needs to change is is um, the crew composition we're we're flying with a bunch of really good guys the, the Coast Guard nav navigators and EMTs are are really good and they're very professional but I think um, if you look at the, the high-functioning HEMS teams whether they're based in Norway the US or UK um, the, the, some of the best of these teams will be a combination of a very experienced in-hospital provider whether it be a flight nurse or a, a physician anesthesiologist or emergency physician as we're using in Europe um, with a very experienced and, and competent pre-hospital provider, a paramedic with, with loads of street, street experience and, and sort of what, what I tend to say, you know, they, they tend to be experts in the logistics. So you come to a job that's very difficult and they know the logistics. They know how to get a patient from point A to B. I know how to facilitate that with drugs. Um, so th those are points that I, I'd like. I'd like to see a more um, a, a more medically competent uh, colleague or, or to have my, my colleagues get more medically medical training so that we can function better as a medical team rather than me being the only medical personnel on board. And the fourth thing and final thing is, is I don't think we need to be running with um, large rescue helicopters for all jobs. I think they, they are required for some and probably many jobs in Iceland just because the weather is difficult it demands it we have situations of icing extreme wind snow and 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 difficult life light, light conditions so a lot of this will demand a rescue type helicopter with de-icing and everything but but a lot of the jobs uh, especially over the summertime that we do would definitely just benefit from from using a smaller helicopter and and um, a helicopter that therefore would be easier to start up and shut down. So one of the things that we're, because of we're running these huge rescue helicopters, they don't like to shut down these helicopters on scene. They're, they're technically more difficult, they need a lot more maintenance and, and um, shutting them down on scene can cause problems. Uh, so sometimes we come to scene and, and the pilot says, well no, we can't shut down this time. And then I have to run in and try to yell to get some sort of history about the patient before being able to evacuate him to the, to the helicopter. And in that situation, try to assess whether he needs an RSI or not, whether I should do it in the ambulance or in the helicopter or whatever. And that is one of right. the benefits with flying in these big helicopters that yes, we can do in helicopter RSIs and, and have done several times. So that's, that's one of the benefits and, and, uh, as I say, there's always going to be pros and cons in, in every system, but, but being able to do in-helicopter RSIs is definitely a pro in our system. Oh, no, sure. And, and actually, you know, we ran um, smaller airframes. Um, we had the BK-117, which is, you know, it's it's kind of the workhorse of helicopter EMS. I think yeah, we the started pre, the pre, the, Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the prehistoric one, 135, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think it started with like a pull chain, like you'd start a lawnmower, I think. And it would just like, 
it had the kind of, you know, uh, feel of being in a Volkswagen bug driving down a bumpy highway. Um, We also had the Dauphine. Um, 365, which is a French aircraft. And now here in Boston, they operate the Sikorsky's, which they bought, I think, the day that I left there. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, we, we did do RSI in those smaller frames. Um, you know, the, we okay. used that smaller frame aircraft um, and, uh, you know, were able to develop uh, a system. Uh, but certainly the more space, the better. I did have an experience you know, an opportunity to work on our the Blackhawk or what, what's called the Jayhawk, which is um, the, uh, you know, Coast Guard version of the Blackhawk. And it felt like you went from the Holiday Inn to the Ritz for the amount of space that you had. Um, but, uh, they, yeah, I, you know, it, it's the, it's interesting to hear some of the extremes of weather that you guys are operating in. You know, I think that, you know, we're uh, the, the non-Coast Guard, you know, systems are much less likely to work in those systems. But, I mean, you have no choice, I think, um, you know, given the extremes of weather there in Iceland to to function in that in that environment. Yeah, as I say, I mean, um, there's been a lot of discussion on this in the helicopter community in in Iceland. And and some people say that, you know, you can't run a hem service in Iceland because um, because we can't run. Uh, a non-de-iced helicopter, but um, I, I've spoken. I'm not an expert. I'm not. I'm not a pilot. But I've spoken to some of the experts, and and um, the guys that I trust most, they say that yes, you can run a ham service in Iceland. You don't need de-icing for everything. It just depends on where you're going. I, if you're going, you know, right across the country, you need to go from from the easternmost point to the westernmost point then you're going to run into icing. You know, you can run into icing in summertime on, on a helicopter. But if you're going to be doing a more locally based uh, helicopter retrieval, you know, with the Hemstype helicopter, you can almost always avoid the, those types of situations, um, definitely in the summertime and, and through most throughout most of the year, actually. Well, I think that's where we have some similarities. The climate in Boston, as you know, having spent time in Massachusetts, yeah, we go from summer to winter uh, in a day, uh, and and or sometimes in an afternoon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, Dr. Magnuson, thank you for spending your time and your extensive experience today. Uh, it's really, I think, interesting. It's interesting for me. I know it's going to be interesting for our listeners to hear about the different programs, uh, the different systems. I think we need more of this, you know, kind of opportunity to, you know, to work out of our silos and talk as an international community of helicopter EMS um, and and learn from each other and, and, and uh, you know, take what we can from the expertise of other programs and, and share our own expertise. Um, so thank you again. Yeah, it, this was very interesting to hear about. And uh, I also think, you know, I, I hadn't planned this, but I think maybe this has developed a dual role for me as both the ambassador of the Bureau of Travel for Iceland, um, as well as maybe a side gig, you know, doing some EMS education. I think that'd be a kind of a, a nice uh, program, especially if I could focus on, um, you know, hot springs and things of that nature, less so on the flying through ice storms. But uh, again, thank you for your time. Anything else you'd like to add before we go? Steve, um, I'd just like to thank you for having me. Uh, I, I hope uh, this discussion between us has been uh, import, you know, uh, both interesting and hopefully important for the listeners. And, and uh, uh, as I say, if anybody wants to know more about the system here in Iceland, uh, 
well, you can help them find me, maybe. Absolutely. And we'll share anything you want to share in our show notes, which will be um, posted online along with this podcast. So I want to thank our listeners for choosing the World Extreme Medicine podcast as your source of wilderness and extreme medicine education. Um, We are so happy to have you uh, as partners in learning. Uh, For more content like this, please make sure to follow us on Instagram at World Extreme Medicine, on Twitter, which is the one program that keeps me up at night, very addictive, uh, at ExpedMed. Make sure to visit our website at worldextrememedicine.com. There is our new uh, World Extreme Medicine Fellowship Program that I think many of our listeners might be interested in, and I really encourage you to look into that. And last but not least, uh, please make sure to join us either live or virtually uh, for the Expedition Medicine Conference in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, that's taking place November 13th through the 15th. It has a lineup of fantastic speakers. Uh, Vidar, you were one of them many years ago, and hopefully we'll have you back again sometime. Uh, so thank you all, and be safe out there. And uh, thank you for joining us at the World Extreme Medicine Podcast.